Well, we're going to turn now to the book of 2 Timothy. We've been working through it this uh, last few weeks or so. And we've come to chapter 3. Uh, Timothy is, or 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul who's dying. He can hear the sword sharpening. He knows he's going to be executed. He's in jail in Rome. He knows he's going to be executed. And so he's, he's like a relay runner passing on the baton to the next generation. Uh, and Timothy is this younger minister, perhaps in his late 30s, early 40s, uh, who Paul has discipled and trained. Uh, and Paul in this letter, which is almost certainly the last thing that he ever wrote. Uh, Paul in this letter instructs Timothy uh, how to keep that true gospel ministry uh, going down the generations. Uh, he's spoken lots about Timothy's individual duties. Today he turns in some ways to uh, the wider picture of what, the, ch- what um, the church and the world will be like. Uh, what Timothy is to expect. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. I'm going to read from verse 1 down to verse uh, 13. Let's hear the voice of the Holy Spirit this morning who says this, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, Unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and at Lystra, at which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me pray as we turn to look at this part of God's word. Father, we pray this morning that we would, in Paul's words, rightly handle the word of truth. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes, unclog our ears, Soften our hearts in order that we might hear and see what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. There's a problem, says Paul. Uh, There's a problem in the church, or at least there will be. It's on the horizon. If, if you were to guess what Paul would, would be warning Timothy about, okay, if I hadn't just read the passage, if we'd done it blind, what, what problem is on the horizon? Well, it's going to be false teaching, surely. Paul's always on about correcting false teaching, isn't he? 
Think of the letters to the Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? You've turned to another gospel. Surely that's the danger. Uh, that's what's going to corrupt churches. Well, sometimes. But what's the problem here? The problem, the thing to look out for, says Paul, the thing to watch out for you're in church is there might well be too much love. That's what I'm worried about. Too much love in your church. In the congregation, step down the years, Timothy. Keep your eyes open because I'm warning you there will be people who love far too strongly. And you must watch out. In fact, not just watch out, avoid people like that. Stay away from people whose love is too fierce, too strong, who are too full of love, too gripped by love. Love is too dangerous, says Paul. Beware, watch out. Something for us to think about this morning. Are we a congregation whose love is too strong? Uh, It's part of the problem out there in the world. The world is too full of love. And it's lethal, dangerous, says Paul. Now, there is, of course, a right love, isn't there? There is, of course, a right love. But really significantly in this passage, love in itself, well, love in itself is neither good nor bad. To, to love just means to desire something strongly, uh, to, to sort of crave it, to, to want it. And in itself, that, that is neither good nor bad. What matters, what is ultimately important, is what you are craving, what you are loving, the objects of your love. All churches, says Paul, every church that's ever existed is going to be absolutely full of love. Just unstoppable. It's just who we are as human beings. You can't help but love. You're built to love. You can't help. You can no more stop loving than you can stop breathing. What matters is what you're loving. That's it. It's like eating. If you're a human being, you've got to eat. What matters is what you're eating. Eating healthy vegetables, children, or poison. One way or another, you will be eating. One way or another, you will be loving. So let's look this morning, just very simply, at two types of ministries, each characterised by a type of love. Two types of churches, we might say. Uh, the first, our church is characterised by self-love. Okay, it's the first, set. first churches are characterised by self-love. This is really verses 1 through 9 of the passage we read. Let's get the, the timing right first, the date right. First one, understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. The last days. That's what I'm warning about, says Paul. Now, when are the last days? We might be tempted to think the last days are the period just before Jesus comes back. One of the things the Bible promises is that one day Jesus will return. That's one of the things that that seems almost unbelievable, doesn't it? We can't see him. We can't sort of look up with a telescope and see heaven. But, but God promises in his word that one day Jesus will return and the world will be transformed. So we might be tempted to think the last days are the kind of the week or two running up to that. But not so. The last days in the Bible are the entire period between Jesus going to heaven and leaving earth and his return. And the book of Acts just after Jesus has ascended. So after the resurrection, Jesus goes up to heaven and um, Peter preaches a sermon and he quotes an Old Testament prophet called Joel. And Joel says, in the last days, his last days, God will pour out his spirit 
And Peter says, that's what's just happened. It's the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out. So the Holy Spirit is here, which means we're in the last days, says Peter. In fact, we know they must be um, a time that already exists rather than a kind of future time, because right in the middle of this passage, Timothy is warned to avoid a certain type of people who are around in the last days. Now, if the last days was just a week or two before Jesus returned, there's no point telling Timothy to avoid those sort of people because well, Timothy's not going to be around. Now, the last days are now. We are living in the last days already. Nothing else is going to happen before Jesus returns. There'll be no more warnings, no more clues, no more angels with trumpets. Now, the next thing that will happen in world history, from God's perspective, is that Christ will return. So, so what, what's life going to be like between now and then? Okay, what, what should we expect from church between now and then? We'll understand this, says Paul. You think about reading the Bible or, or listening to sermons. We're often thinking about application, don't we? You know, what, what does this mean? What am I meant to do about this? Well, the command is there right at the beginning. Understand. Okay, this morning largely is going to be about expectations, understandings. What, what is church going to be like? What is life going to be like between now and Jesus returning? Understand this. There will come times of difficulty. The church is like a ship on a voyage. If you ever sailed a long way, gone on a boat on a long journey, and then if the journey is long enough, you'll know sometimes it's smooth waters and pleasant sailing, and sometimes the waves are choppy. Uh, that's going to be the journey of the church between Jesus' first and second coming. Sometimes it'll be sort of okay, but at other times there will be difficult times. Notice it's not that all the last days is always going to be awful. There will be times within them that are difficult. That word difficult is a bit soft, really. The only other time that word difficult, that the Greek word underneath it, comes in the New Testament, it's used to describe uh, the, the guy possessed by demons in the gospel, who is who's so fierce and wild, no one can kind of catch him and, and bind him and chain him up. The last days are going to be wild, fierce at times, untamable. Uh, why? Well, all because of love. Uh, in verses 2, all the way down to uh, verse f- uh, 5, Paul gives a big long list of pretty unpleasant characteristics, doesn't he? Uh, 19 things listed. We're not going to pick through them one by one because we'll be here all morning. Uh, but but they're, they're, not a, they're not a sort of appealing list, are they? People will be ungrateful, heartless, slanderous. That's literally the word... Um, devils, okay? the, the devil is the slanderer. Are they going to be treacherous? Again, a word that applied to Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Uh, what binds all these things together? Is there a link or a pattern? Well, I'm not sure you can see one other than the bookends. Do you see what, what's really gone wrong with these people is their love. Look how the list starts. Verse 2, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Then on we go, proud, arrogant, abusive, and so on. Get to the end of the list, verse 4. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. It's all about love, says Paul. These people are full of love. Absolutely full of it. But they're lovers of self. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure and not, crucially, lovers of God. It's not they're not lovers. It's not they don't love is that they love the wrong things. And in fact, it is not loving God and loving self 
that leads to all these other, other problems. Uh, the two kind of really outward ones, not loving God at the end of the list and loving self. They're like kind of mirror images. They're the bookends of all that's gone wrong in between. In that way, they're a bit like the Ten Commandments. So do you remember how the Ten Commandments begin? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other God before me. Oh, sorry. I, should, I, I asked a question. and didn't take answers. That was totally wrong, wasn't it? Okay. You shall have no other gods before me. And in, I, even harder. What's the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment. Do you know, Johnny? Yep. Brilliant. You shall not covet. Well done. To covet means to desire something, to want something, to love something, if you like. To desire something that's not yours. And in some ways, that the two commandments, the first and the last commandment, the first and the tenth, are also like bookends. Uh, we're told positively in the first one, we should love God more than anything else. He should be the top priority. And finally, the last one, not to desire things too strongly that we haven't been given. And really, all the other problems come, uh, all the other commandments we break, come from breaking those two commandments. Uh, the, the two outside ones are, are almost the same. No other gods. doesn't just mean don't worship another kind of god like Baal or Osiris or whoever it might be. But it means don't give your whole life living for your career. Don't give your whole life for living for money. Don't give your whole life for living for pleasure or, or sex or, or family. And the last one, don't covet. Well, to covet is to desire something that God has not given you. So think of some of the other commandments, some of the other things that go wrong in this list or in the commandments. Why do we steal? We steal because we want something that isn't ours. In other words, we break that commandment because we've already broken the coveting commandment. Why do people murder or get angry, which Jesus says is a bit like murdering? We get angry because things aren't as we want. Circumstances aren't as we would have them. In other words, we desire the situation to be different and we're cross because it's not as we want life to be. Why do we grumble? We grumble because God hasn't made the world as we would have done it. And so we complain against him. Again, it's coveting, desiring, loving our own pleasure or comfort, whereas God has put us in a situation of discomfort. Uh, On and on we could go. Why do we not take the Sabbath seriously anymore? Why do we not rest on Sunday and worship? Well, because I want to steal that time back. I desire to use that time for myself. I'm a lover of pleasure, a lover of self, not a lover of God. Uh, As human beings, we, we just naturally curve in on ourselves and try and live for ourselves, our own pleasure, rather than, as we were created to be, live for God first of all, and then other people. And it leads to all sorts of horrible behaviour, as Paul lists in these verses. Uh, Second on the list there, uh, in verse 2, is lovers of money. Uh, money, one writer, Chris Green, says this, money is power made solid. I think it's quite it's insightful, isn't it? Money is power made solid. Money buys you power, doesn't it? It enables you to do things. It enables to make yourself safe. Okay? I'm going to spend money to make myself safe. Or it enables you to, to serve your own pleasure. I'm going to spend money to, to make myself happy, comfortable. It buys you power against danger, power against discomfort, power against boredom. 
But again, it's worth saying, it's, it's not wrong to want to be safe and comfortable and all these things, but it's not wrong to care for your family or work hard at your career. The problem comes when all these things get promoted above loving God. And one of the ways you can tell that you love money or comfort or pleasure or power, whatever it might be too much, is when you don't get that thing, you commit all these other sins. You get grumpy because you've not got what you wanted. Uh, you get proud because you've succeeded at your career. Uh, you're arrogant, verse 2, because you're a success and other people are failures. You're disobedient to your parents because they've not given you what you want. Uh, you slander, take other people down, use your words to harm them, undermine their reputation in others because, well, because you want yourself to look good and not others. When we're not satisfied with God, when we demand other things, it opens the door to a host of other sins. In other words, it's in our love, our love for our own pleasure and comfort. It is a key that unlocks this dungeon full of monsters in our hearts, lets out all the kind of serpents and vipers that are in there. Our problem is we love ourselves too much and God and other people too little. But there's a real punch in the guts at the end of that list, isn't there? Do you see this? So, so that whole list of pretty unpleasant behaviours, how does it end? Or does it end with Paul saying, and that is what Leeds is going to be like on a Friday and a Saturday night, so stay away from it. That is what celebrity culture is going to be like, so turn your back on them. That is the cesspit that is going to be the internet out there in the world, so huddle together as a church. At least there, there you'll be with the good people. We'll know. See what... what uh, what these people are like that Paul describes in the last days, they have, verse 5, the appearance of godliness. This is not Paul standing in church on a Sunday morning, pointing out the window and saying, look at those people out there, aren't they awful? It's so easy for Christians to fall into that trap, isn't it? Oh, yeah, Thankfully, we're not like them, but man, have you seen outside the window? Now, this is Paul looking at the congregation, looking inwards, these people have an appearance of godliness. Now, he doesn't exactly describe what that means, but clearly these are people who are claiming to be Christians. This is not people who have no interest at all in the church. There are those, perhaps, who turn up Sunday by Sunday and go through the motions. There are those, perhaps, uh, who would definitely write Christian on the census form when it comes around. There are those who have been baptised and are pretty proud about it. There are even those who are in ministry, it seems. Uh, among them, verse 6, are those who creep into houses and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They are evangelistic. They're doing ministry. They're creeping into houses and taking advantage of people. Now, I want to say, because that would be very easy to be misheard, that verse. That verse is not saying, Paul is not saying, that these people are weak because they are women. Okay, That is not what it's saying. But if you read through the, the letters to Timothy, to 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy in particular, um, there is a group of women in the church who have been essentially kind of captured, led astray by a bunch of false teachers. Okay? So it is some women in the church uh, who are, are, are weak in particular ways, weighed down by their sins, who have been captured. He is not saying it is inherent to all women that they are weak. Okay? You better clarify that. But... These false teachers who look sort of godly. Well, they're having real ministerial success. Uh, again, when Paul begins this passage, understand this. this. This should be a bit of a shock to us. If you call yourself a, a, a Christian, 
it maybe you need to sort of wake up a little bit this morning. It's a bit of a bucket of cold water in the, in the face. And if you're new to Christianity, if you're trying to work things out, then this is a bit of a warning to you that, that unfortunately, not everybody who calls himself a Christian, not everybody church that has the words church written outside or a nice sign up, not everyone who wears a dog collar or a clerical dress or, as I said last week, stands in front of a poster that says Christ Church, not everyone, sadly, is really representing Jesus. Uh, these people, well, their ministry is characterised by certain things. Uh, it has evangelistic success. Okay, they're doing mission. Okay, they're knocking on doors in the daytime. Now, you can imagine, particularly in that culture, where on the whole women didn't work, so the, um, uh, they're at home. Uh, these people are around door knocking. Let's, let, let's attack this particular group of women while, while there's no one around to sort of ward us off. They're having evangelistic success. Uh, they have spiritual power. They're compared in verse 8 to Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. Well, who are these? Um, the, the, do you remember the story of the Exodus? Where, where I hope if you're in Christchurch, you remember it because we preached on it about five weeks ago. Um, but the story of the Exodus, which is where Moses leads God's people out of Egypt into the promised land. But Pharaoh initially doesn't want to let God's people go, does he? And so Moses goes to Pharaoh and does various sort of signs to show his power. Uh, so uh, the, the staff gets thrown down, Moses and Aaron throw their staffs down, they turn into snakes. But then Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. Uh, Moses picks up his staff, taps the water, the water turns to blood. But the magicians do the same thing. Moses fills the land with frogs, and then the magicians do the same thing. Now, after that, the magicians are out. But to start with, the magicians, Pharaoh's court magicians, can somehow copy what Moses is doing. They have some sort of spiritual power. It would have been pretty impressive, would it not? If you meet someone, you could throw their staff down and turn it into a snake. Well, tradition says that those magicians' names were Janus and Jambres. They're not actually in the book of Exodus, that's not, they're not named, but in Jewish history they are. And Paul is comparing these other ministers to Janus and Jambres. In other words, in part, these guys are going to have spiritual power. They might be able to do stuff that seems spectacular, miraculous. I haven't really got time to kind of try and defend this this morning. But there is power in the world beyond the sort of physical and material. God clearly, clearly is supernatural. One of the reasons you can't find him using scientific methods is he is super above the natural. So trying to find God with scientific methods uh, would be like trying to sort of you know, find iron in the ground using a telescope. He's just using the wrong tools. But he tells us in his word that there are evil spiritual forces too quite capable of doing other supernatural stuff. Just because you see something that is supernatural, even if it seems sort of nice and helpful, doesn't necessarily mean that the person doing it is a true minister of Christ. If we were to put this passage in chapter 3 together with the one we looked at last week, then the kind of ministries that Paul is warning about will have these kind of characteristics. They'll be spiritually seemingly powerful, perhaps able to do the miraculous. They'll be popular. Okay. They have success, don't they? That's why Paul's warning about them. He said last week their teaching will spread and spread. 
They will be able to grow big congregations. They will use the right language. Remember Hymenaeus and Philetus last week talked about the resurrection a lot. They will use the right kind of language. God, Jesus, power, holiness, gospel, mission. And yet they are deadly. They have a form of godliness, but deny its power, says Paul. We mustn't be taken in. And it feels really unloving, doesn't it? Because we want to just say, hey, let you know, a thousand blossoms flourish and all the rest. But Paul does warn there will be people who say they are Christians, who are ministers in the church, who grow great congregations, who seem to be able to do spiritual things, who have seemingly the right language, although they, use, they mean different things, and it will be ruinous. Utterly, utterly ruinous. My grandparents used to live in, um, in Nottingham. If you've ever been to Nottingham, there's a, sort of a big hall there called Woolerton Hall. And as a kid, I loved going to Woolerton Hall because it was full. It's very un-PC now, probably, but it was absolutely full of um, wild animals. So you walk in the, you walk in the hallway. It's, an, it's, it's, the, it's the hall they use for the Batman movies. Okay? If you've seen Batman's house in the movies, that's Woolerton Hall. Um, you walk in the hallway, and there's this massive giraffe. Okay? I've never seen a giraffe before. I have been to a zoo. I can't even a giraffe. Okay, you, you sort of turn right, and down, down under the kind of gallery thing, there's this bear. And they're all stuffed animals. Okay? They'd all be shot back in the days when people didn't mind doing that kind of thing. Stuffed and put in this hall. Paul says the false teachers are like that. They look like one thing, but really there's no substance. They've got a form of Christianity, but no power. It's a form of a giraffe, but it's not meeting any leaves. Okay, form of a bear, but it's not going to chase you. No power. Dead, stuffed. Uh, what does it mean not to have any power? Deny the power uh, down there in verse 5. Well, power in 2 Timothy is not about being able to do the miraculous uh, or, or have, being hugely successful. Uh, it's not about conquering sin and being able to cruise through life you know, at 10,000 feet. Power is all about being prepared to suffer for the gospel. Uh, back in chapter 1, uh, we were told by Paul uh, that God has given us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, he goes on, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. A powerful ministry is one that is prepared to suffer. That is not so full of self-love that it's just about pumping up the preacher's ego, telling the congregation what they want to hear, but rather will suffer for the sake of the gospel. We mustn't be naive. Shakespeare says, a man may smile and smile and be a villain. Uh, about uh, 20 or so years ago, when I was at university, uh, one of the most popular evangelical preachers of the, the time was speaking at Word Alive, which is a kind of student festival okay, for super keen Christians who believe the Bible and all the rest of it. And just before uh, that happened at Easter, I think it still does happen at Easter, just before he was... He was um, Speaking that year, uh, he let out a book, a book where he, uh, he said, look, I, I'm a proper Bible-believing evangelical. I believe Jesus died for us. But th- there's a bunch of Christians that have been teaching Jesus bore God's wrath at our sin. And that is a horrible teaching. It's like divine child abuse. Uh, we must reject that understanding. So he still wanted to talk about the cross and God's love for us and Jesus dying for us. But we mustn't believe that, that our sin was going to lead us to be punished by God. And that's what Jesus took on the cross. There was a bit of a sort of fury about it. 
but he was popular. He'd grown a massive ministry, still has in fact, done all sorts of genuinely good things out there in society. So that was about 20 years ago, uh, about 2013, same minister, very publicly with a big profile in the papers, got an article in the Guardian, uh, wrote about how horrific it was that, that some Christians still hadn't accepted that two people of the same sex can marry. Again, he was calling himself an evangelical, a Bible believer, a Jesus follower. He talked about love. We must be people who love. Jesus talks about love all the time. So how can we deny two people of the same sex the right to marry if they genuinely love? Just last year, same minister, this is a 20-year trajectory, uh, last year the same minister was calling um, for churches that don't, uh, well, churches that agree and hold to a traditional view of marriage or to be prosecuted for abuse. This is a guy who's an evangelical, or claimed to be an evangelical, in fact still claims to be evangelical. It's a trajectory. We mustn't be naive. We must be aware of what life's going to be like. And, part, and first and foremost, of course, we must look in the mirror. Okay. So for, for Peter and Matthew, who are about to be elders, for myself, again, the, the first thing is not to look out there and say, well, look at all those horrible other ministers. The first thing is to pray to God that we don't become like this. Because it's only the grace of God that can do that. Nothing in ourselves. If you're a, a regular here at Christchurch Central, you pray that, that the Christchurch doesn't become this kind of ministry. We shouldn't be so puffed up we think we could never fall. We could never become like this. Of course we could. Please God not. What is the problem? When we think that love is love, that any love is okay. We believe what the world preaches to us, that we ought to love ourselves first. As an irony, Alistair Begg says, the great irony in this, in this passage in particular is what Paul sees as, as the disease, the world sees as the cure. Haven't you been talked to, if you're youngish, you've been taught from the youngest age that you need to follow your heart, that if it's what's within you, you ought to follow. Your heart is a true compass. Be true to yourself. That, says Paul, that kind of self-love is a disaster, it's ruinous. You cannot trust your heart because it's, it's a crooked compass, a faulty map. Very quickly as we finish, what, what is a true ministry like? If one ministry is characterised by self-love, well, in verses 10 through 14, we see Paul's ministry, which is, is characterised not by self-love, but by sacrificial love. By sacrificial love. But Paul is very, seems very self-centred, doesn't he? Just see the repeated word all the way through verse 10 and 11? You, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions. Me, 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 me. You've got to be like me, says Paul. But that is because Paul is the appointed apostle of the Lord Jesus, this official representative, if you like, one of the, the 13, as it ended up, uh, true apostles, true spokesmen for Jesus. I am the pattern. If you want to see what Christ's ministry really looks like, it, it's like this. In that way, Paul is saying, I'm also like a new Moses. I'm a Janus and Jambres oppose Moses. These men oppose me, my style of ministry. And where do we see real ministry? What does it look like? It looks like suffering. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, Iconium and Lystra. Three places in the sort of Mediterranean basin. Why does he mention them? I think because Timothy is from Lystra. Maybe Timothy even saw Paul's ministry in Lystra. Paul went to Lystra and preached. Here is the true man of God. Imagine 
Paul coming to Leeds to preach. Okay. Sack off Christchurch Central, Redeemer, City Church. Just, Paul's going to be at, at the stadium. Okay, we're all down there. Well, how did it go at Lystra? Finally, a really spiritual minister, a prayerful minister, a godly minister, one of the appointed apostles. It doesn't come any bigger. Never mind Billy Graham, it's Paul. How, how did it end up? He was so furious with his ministry, they stoned him. And when they thought he was dead, dragged him outside the city and bunged his corpse outside the gates. That, that, that Sunday, where is the true gospel minister? Says Paul. Is it one of these men that Timothy sees who've attracted the congregation? Who are doing well for themselves financially, who are popular, who the world loves, who've got a platform or on TV? No, the real gospel minister is lying, bleeding in a ditch, unconscious outside the city. Now, thank God, as Paul began, that in the last days, it's only sometimes like this, but around the world, there are times like this at the moment, are there not? One of the charities we give towards, organisations we give towards as a church, is the Barnabas Trust. Barnabas Fund, sorry, who, who care for Christians who are being persecuted. There are parts of the world where very literally this will be happening. We have no promise of comfort. But it's stick with my teaching, my conduct, my aim, my faith, but also my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Paul's not angry. He doesn't want to see everyone else sort of destroyed, or he's not sort of cross, angry, firebrand. No, what he's full of is love. Do you see it? It's a bit more subtle in this, pass, in this part of the text, but verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life. There it is, the desire, the love. I just want to live a godly life. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not all ministers, all elders, all. If you live a life of love to Christ, you will be persecuted somehow. I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know what degree it'll vary, but it will happen. And I suspect for us it'll happen actually because of this area of love. We'll be accused of being unloving because we won't just bless anybody who claims they are showing love, whatever kind of relationship they get themselves into. And who knows where the tide is heading? I don't know, I'm not a prophet. It's not unlikely, is it, that some of our persecution will come because we're being portrayed as the unloving ones. Or as actually Paul says, true love is self-sacrificial. Why did Paul go through all this? Because he wanted people to be saved. He wanted Christ to be honoured. He wanted these people, even the kind of Janus and Jamreses, to, to come to the truth. So I'll, I'll suffer the beatings. In all that my people, my people might hear of the one who was beaten for me, the one who suffered for me, God himself, who had no agenda, God the Son came to earth. He had nothing to gain by it. That's why his love is true love. Again, whether you're a Christian or not, perhaps you're new to these things this morning. God came down and became man, died for us, suffered for us, not to gain something, because he didn't need anything from us. What could we give God? But because he loves. He loves you. He wants you to be saved. And the only way he could be saved was by taking your sins on his shoulders and dying for them, undergoing his own punishment. His own justice, his own wrath, in order that you might be saved. That's why you can trust him. That's why all you need to do to become a Christian is come to him and say, forgive me. I'm yours. You love me. I bring nothing to you. But I want to follow you. 
Yeah, if you're not a Christian, come to me this morning and say just that. Forgive me. I want to know your love. If you are, we'll expect to suffer. But know that when you do, it's not God trying to extort his pound of flesh out of you. It's not that he's abandoned you. It's just that you're walking the path of the cross. And his unconditional love for you is not measured by how easy your life is going. So here's true ministry as we close. John Wesley, great preacher, evangelist. Here's an extract from his diary. And I'll finish with this. Sunday morning, May the 5th. Preached at St Anne's was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May the 5th, preached at St. John's. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May the 12th, a week later, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday evening, May the 12th, preached at St. George's. Kicked out again. Sunday the 19th of May in the morning, preached at St. Somebody Else's. Deacon's called a special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday evening, May the 19th, preached on the street. Kicked off the street. Sunday, May the 26th, morning, preached in a meadow. Chased out of the meadow when a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday, June the 2nd, preached on the edge of town. Kicked off the highway. Sunday, the 2nd of June, p.m., afternoon service. Preached in a field. 10,000 people came. <laughs> There's ministry for you. Totally unpredictable. One, two, three, four weeks. I've been kicked out of everything, even a field. Bull set loose. Total mayhem. We think of these great people of the past as sort of standing there and preaching. You see the carvings of them and people look wrapped. Ah, There's people trying to kill them, literally. Sunday evening, 10,000 people turned up. Who knows what the Lord will do? But your job is to stay faithful. Expect persecution. Stay away. Avoid the shams. Remember these are the last days. Remember God's love is worth it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we don't pretend uh, there is any strength in us whatsoever. And nor do we pretend that we are any different naturally uh, from the people Paul describes here. We pray so much that you'll save us from love of money, uh, love of self, love of pleasure. Transform us, we pray, by the power of your spirit. Give us the grace that is in the Lord Jesus to become instead lovers of our God and lovers of our neighbour. Might we not just follow our hearts, but follow your word. And we pray that you'd enable us to endure persecution when it comes. And know that suffering for Jesus is worth it. And Father, we pray for brothers and sisters across the city, across the world indeed. And that you would put steel in our bones, a true love. A love uh, even for those who oppose and persecute us. Bless your church, we pray, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen.